why am I having miscarriages? Why is this happening to me? I am broken, fix me. And realizing that I don't have to have all of the answers. This is what we have. This is what we are learning. This is what we need to know in the future, but I can still give good care. Welcome to the Mastering Your Fertility podcast. The show is all about reclaiming health, enhancing fertility, and preparing for pregnancy. We're Dr. Haley Nye and Kristen Cornett, and your hosts and the creators of the online fertility platform, Tiny Feet. At Tiny Feet, we take a very unique functional medicine approach to helping couples overcome fertility struggles, conceive successfully, and have healthy, thriving babies. We offer individualized consults that include functional lab testing and targeted naturopathic and nutritional therapies, as well as an online fertility assessment in online courses. And so you can learn more about us on our website at tinyfeet.co. And if you're interested in knowing more about what we can do for you specifically, please book a free 20-minute consult with us. We would love to chat with you, and you can find the link to book a consult in the episode description notes. So welcome back. You're listening to episode 32, where we are talking with Dr. Laura Shaheen. Dr. Shaheen is a reproductive endocrinologist that practices at Pacific Northwest Fertility Center in Seattle, Washington. And one of her specialties there is focusing on recurrent pregnancy loss. So she's opened a focused center for recurrent pregnancy loss within her fertility clinic to help couples struggling with this heartbreaking condition. She's so dedicated to helping patients that she wrote a book on the subject called Not Broken, an approachable guide to miscarriage and recurrent pregnancy loss. And it was published in 2017 and we highly recommend it. We read the book ourselves and learned a lot from what she had to say. So she really clarifies misconceptions around miscarriage and gives actionable steps on how to advocate for yourself on getting answers from your doctors and how to take back some control, especially in this time when it just feels so out of control. So again, we really enjoyed the interview and learned many things ourselves. So here's what you can expect from this episode. We talk about the most common cause of recurrent miscarriage, the correct definition for recurrent mis miscarriage, and what your doctor understands as recurrent miscarriage, and all, also the first steps in evaluating the potential cause and what are some specific things that you can do to reduce your risk. And then, of course, we started going off on a couple other topics, so just wanted to let you know what else to expect. So we talk about some common fertility myths to watch out for, the downsides uh, to freezing your eggs, and then also why IVF isn't always the best answer. And so that's going to be more towards the beginning of the episode. If you want to get right into the meat of what recurrent pregnancy loss is all about and how to approach that, that's going to be towards more of the second half of the episode. So before we get started, we want to give a quick listener shout out to Annie Sagan, who left us a review on iTunes. She said, this podcast has given me so much optimism and confidence. I've seen myself grow to become an advocate in my doctor's appointments. I'm more comfortable asking questions, and I feel like I have more control in my fertility journey. 
taking charge of my reproductive health and getting to the root cause of my health problems has been the most empowering thing I've done for my body in a long time. I feel like I can always find something relevant to my current situation in this podcast. Highly recommend to any women out there. Thank you for doing what you do. Annie, thank you so much for writing that review. You really hit on so many of those like trigger words for us that keeps us going, like optimism and confidence and getting to the root cause and advocating for yourself and taking charge of your reproductive health. So we can't be more happier that you um, are getting that much benefit out of this podcast. So thank you so much for writing that review. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please consider leaving us a rating or review on iTunes. We love hearing from our listeners and it keeps us super motivated to keep bringing you the best content when we hear from you. So this episode is brought to you by our free quiz called, Are You Healthy Enough to Get Pregnant? So when you Uh, You can download this quiz in the link in the episode description. Now, the quiz is going to walk you through five categories of symptoms and will help you identify which aspects of your health might be affecting your fertility. And we also give you actionable recommendations for addressing your symptoms in each of these categories so you know where you need to focus your efforts on your preconception journey. And we highly recommend that you download the quiz so you can get started right away with implementing these steps to improve your chances of conceiving and carrying to term successfully. To learn more about your particular symptoms and how they relate to fertility, please check out episode 16, which is called, Are You Healthy Enough to Get Pregnant? So this is one of our most popular episodes um, because we give you a lot of actionable steps to get started um, addressing your symptoms that are specific within that downloadable quiz. So we hope you enjoy. All right, let's get started with properly introducing our amazing guest. Dr. Laura Shaheen is a reproductive endocrinologist currently practicing at Pacific Northwest Fertility and IVF specialist in Seattle. Originally from North Carolina, Dr. Shaheen graduated with a Bachelor of Science in Biology from Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., and completed her training in medical school at Wake Forest University School of Medicine, residency in obstetrics and gynecology at the University of California at San Francisco, and fellowship in reproductive endocrinology and infertility at Stanford University. As clinical faculty at the University of Washington and director of the Center of Recurrent Pregnancy Loss at Pacific Northwest Fertility, she is committed to providing excellence in patient care, teaching the next generation of women's healthcare providers, and continuing education and research in fields of fertility and recurrent miscarriage. She has published over 50 peer-reviewed research projects and is an active board member of the Early Pregnancy Special Interest Group of the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, Seattle Gynecology Society, and the Baby Quest Fertility Grant Organization. Dr. Shaheen is an accomplished author of her own blog and three patient-centered books, on integrative approach to fertility care and recurrent miscarriage, including her best-selling book that we're gonna be talking about today, Not Broken. 
She is passionate about patient education and changing the conversation surrounding infertility and miscarriage from one of shame and guilt to one of support and empowerment. And you can learn more about Dr. Shaheen on her website at drlaurashaheen.com and connect with her at Dr. Laura Shaheen. That's S H A. H-I-N-E on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And those links will also be in the description. Hi, welcome Dr. Shaheen. And thank you so much for being part of the fertility podcast today. I'm excited to be here. It's an honor. Awesome. Yeah. We are so excited to have you. Um, so First of all, tell us a little bit about your background and how you became a reproductive endocrinologist working in the facility up in Seattle. Absolutely. So um, I always knew that I wanted to be a doctor, although nobody in my family is a physician. It's just something I was always drawn to. Um, and in medical school, I loved everything that I did. And finally, my last rotation was obstetrics and gynecology. And it's just like a light bulb women's health, a little bit of surgery, um, delivering babies. It just seemed fantastic, a great fit. And through the four years of OBGYN residency, um, just absolutely loved it, but was introduced to the field of fertility. And it really combined a lot of my passions, really helping people at a really vulnerable time. Um, all the technology, I just knew that I would never stop learning. Um, and just really being able to um, help people build their families. It just seems like a great fit for me. And I'm very fortunate that I got the fellowship in reproductive endocrinology. And in looking for um, a good fit, I just found this incredible practice in Seattle, uh, Pacific Northwest Fertility. It just combined so much of what I wanted, putting patients first, um, you know, a small herb practice. We, I would be the third doctor um, really a physician owned practice. So being able to make decisions based on what we thought was right for the patients is very empowering. Um, and so, I mean, I could talk for hours about it, but that's the, the cliff notes version. <laughs> I love the passion for sure. Yeah. yeah. And when yeah. you were at, um, Stan, is it Stanford that you did your uh, residency in? Was it fellowship as well? So I did the OBGYN residency at the University of California in San Francisco. Um, that was the four years of delivering babies. And then my fellowship in reproductive endocrinology was at, at Stanford. Great. Okay. And then is that when uh, your mentor opened up a, a recurrent pregnancy loss center? Exactly. So I was in the right place at the right time to learn um, something really interesting and a unique way of looking at trying to learn about a problem that we still are learning a lot about, um, is a humble way to put it. Um, so my mentor, uh, Ruth Lottie, who is still at Stanford, um, and she's now the uh, residency and fellowship program director, um, she decided to open up a center for recurrent pregnancy loss while I was there. So I learned a lot being in the right place at the right time. And what I really appreciated was her collaborative approach and gathering experts um, and interested parties from lots of different fields, basic science, um, immunology, gastroenterology, um, of course, obstetricians and high-risk um, um, uh, gynecologists, um, just because 
with how much information is out there, we really can't read every single study and a complicated field like women's health, um, reproduction, uh, miscarriage, there's so many components. I loved just bringing these people together. And you loved it so much that did you open up your own center up at Pacific Northwest Fertility? Right, and that was not um, something that I was planning on, I would say. I started my practice at Pacific Northwest Fertility and just really enjoyed the first year um, taking care of fertility patients and learning how to, um, you know, be, um, you know, my own, you know, I guess I've been taking care of patients since medical school, but it's different when you're the attending and you're making the decisions. And so really enjoyed that. And I kept seeing people that had multiple miscarriages and realizing that there really wasn't anyone in the area that was really focused on it. There are um, several reproductive endocrinologists, but it's, um, it's not something that a lot of people focus on. And I realized that I had a unique background and talked to my partners and said, this is something that I feel really compelled to do. Um, I was actually reluctant and quite nervous. Um, I felt like it was a huge responsibility um, because I certainly don't know everything. Um, but the fact that I had that background and that I, I cared and that I was willing to, to continue to learn, uh, it was a big leap of faith on my partners and myself, but never looked back. I'm glad I did it. We're glad you did it too. <laughs> and so that led you to writing a book, right? Well, your first book was um, the seed, setting the seeds to pregnancy. Yeah, right. <laughs> I fell into writing sort of accidentally too. So the very first person that um, uh, referred a patient to me when I moved up to Seattle and started my practice in 2009 um, was an acupuncturist, and her name is Stephanie Gianarelli, and she's a fertility acupuncturist and had her own practice in Seattle. And um, I came from San Francisco and the Bay Area where there's definitely more of a balanced and integrative approach, but this is a long time ago and that was still pretty wild for an acupuncturist to refer to an IVF doctor, I put in air quotes. Um, and so I picked up the phone and started talking to her, I really built a friendship and we've shared a lot of patients through the years. And she had been working on a book, um, planting the seeds of pregnancy, really trying to discuss an integrative approach, or excuse me, she was really doing a, a traditional Chinese medicine approach to fertility and trying to explain um, just the vocabulary is different, but we're all trying to do the same thing. The healthier we are, the more balanced we are, the more receptive we are to getting pregnant and trying to make it a readable thing for an audience that's, um, you know, Western comfortable. Um, and she's like, you know, I just really want somebody else to write a little bit more about um, the Western approach, you know, what to expect if you go to a fertility doctor and what is an intrauterine insemination and how is IVF different? And I, so I was like, okay, I'll write a chapter. And that turned into another chapter, <laughs> another chapter. And we ended up, it really became a collaborative approach and um, we ended up publishing. And so that was my first um, delve into being an author and I really enjoyed it. And, um, and then I, you know, after five or six years of the Center for Recurrent Pregnancy Loss, I published a lot of academic papers, but I just found um, that I kept saying the same thing in consults. Um, it was to different people and every interaction with the patient is different, but I kept saying the same thing 
I kept doing the same tests and the nurses were reporting and patients were reporting, they were asking the same questions over and over again. And I was like, you know, if I wrote this down, I think I could actually make this easier for people. Um, and so it started off with a couple blog posts here and there. And, you know, I was like, well, I've actually published a, bu a book before. So that came out and the way it works in the practice, I actually, um, I give it to every patient that I see and that's what it's designed for. It's supposed to be able to say, there is no way that you are going to retain everything that I say to you in an hour. So this is it. We're talking on a high level, but if you want to delve into the, the things that we're talking about, here you go. I think it's such an amazing resource. I mean, I read the entire thing cover to cover and I was just yes. kind of blown away by just how much information you provided and the different perspectives that you offered. And I think that's really helpful for patients and talking about the integrative side of things and some of the ways that patients can support their health. You know, it's not all just about like, oh, you have to treat this this way. It's these are all the different ways that you can support your health that will help you, you know, be more confident on this journey and just make the whole process better and easier. So I really appreciated what you did with Not Broken. Thank you. I really appreciate that. I think it took me a long time of um, disappointing a lot of patients or getting comfortable with the unknown and sitting across from somebody time and time and time again, who is looking to me for an answer. Why am I having miscarriages? Why is this happening to me? I am broken, fix me. And realizing that I don't have to have all of the answers. This is what we have. This is what we are learning. This is what we need to know in the future, but I can still give good care. And I think um, and it's one of the reasons a lot of people, physicians, especially Western trained physicians, don't really focus on miscarriage. There's not a lot of answers and it's a very uncomfortable place to be when you go into a field to fix people. It's much easier to diagnose high blood pressure, give a prescription and see them again later. We should really focus on lifestyle issues in that factor as well. But um, but. Um, I do appreciate your noting that I do really talk about a lot of different approaches because um, as you know from the book, you know, I'm not doing um, like high dose steroids or intravenous immunoglobulin or intravenous intralipids. And um, it took me a long time to be able to feel confident in talking to patients about that because gosh, so many people, they just want to do something. And doctors just want to do something. And there are real side effects with those things. And it's hard to explain. Um, it's not that I'm not doing something for you. I'm trying to you know, keep you safe. And I just want you to learn about all the different options and not just do something that really could, could cause harm. Yeah. I mean, you talked about um, this area of medicine as like a kind of a big gray area. There's still so much that we don't know. Um, and it's hard because there's a lot of information out there that women are coming across from different avenues. And, you know, you do kind of have to be in that position where you have to make a decision about what you're going to kind of entertain in terms of treatment in your practice based on the best available evidence that we have right now. So I think you did a really good job of kind of walking the line and talking about some of the therapies that maybe you don't necessarily support based on the evidence, but at least acknowledging that those are there and talking about some of the risks and the benefits to those things. So, and I do have patients that um, that do still seek that treatment. I don't prescribe it, 
um, and I just talk to them about how I feel. Um, but it, if they're doing it, um, I just I'm saying just let's be honest because the worst is when the patient gets stuck in the middle where they're kind of going between different providers and uh, you know might not tell their Western medicine provider that they're doing say acupuncture, which is not one of the controversial things that we're talking about, but they're just, um, they hide what they're doing. Um, and I think that's the worst because if we don't know, then, you know, we can't talk about it. Yeah. And I, I think it's important also to, you know, have that, that very open, very supportive relationship with a provider. And I want to talk about that a little bit more kind of towards the end about how you recommend women and couples um, choosing their care team. But for now, let's kind of jump into um, the subject of miscarriage a little bit more. So can you start off by telling us what the difference is um, between a biochemical miscarriage and a clinical miscarriage? Sure. It's just basically um, how far along the present pregnancy gets before it stops developing on its own. And the difference between them is very important in academic papers and for medical records. And we do, um, you know, think about them differently. And as far as like definitions, um, it's, um, it's important. Um, But I think there's definitely a difference between, you know, clinically and what we think about it um, medically and in textbooks and what women feel. And that's really important to note. So um, a clinical miscarriage is a pregnancy that stops developing on its own after the point where you can see something on ultrasound or you can have a tissue diagnosis. Um, And so in general, that's about five and a half weeks and further, because even at about five and a half weeks, you can see a gestational sac on ultrasound. So um, if you can see something on ultrasound or somebody has a DNC or they have um, tissue that they bring in, it can be tested, that's considered a clinical miscarriage. Whereas a biochemical miscarriage, there's a positive pregnancy test, um, either a home test or um, a blood test uh, that definitely says that the pregnancy hormone is, you know, being made by the body, there is implantation, um, but it stops developing before you can see anything on ultrasound. And so, um, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's a gray area. If someone's had ultrasounds, it can be very clear. Sometimes people, you know, they find out that the pregnancy stopped developing when they are 10 weeks along, they haven't had a period in 10 weeks, but yet um, you know, on, and there's been no bleeding, but there's nothing on ultrasound. So that's technically a biochemical miscarriage. Does that make sense? Yeah. I said that. Uh, would they, you call that missed miscarriage? Um, well, if there's something on ultrasound, um, and the person hasn't started, uh, bleeding or passing any tissue, um, but there's no heartbeat, um, or the pregnancy, you can do an ultrasound and then a week later, there's no change or no development in that week. But yet again, there's no signs of miscarriage like bleeding or cramping. That's considered a missed miscarriage. Mm-hmm. And actually they say missed abortion if you really want to get to the medical or what you'd read in a medical chapter book. Right. Yeah. I wanted to clarify that too, because in the medical research, we talk about spontaneous abortion or missed abortion, and that could be really triggering for women when they don't understand that, um, 
were referring to miscarriage. And so could you just touch on that a little bit? Sure. Abortion is just um, a pregnancy that stops developing uh, before or, or a preg- let's say a pregnancy that stops, no matter whether someone initiates that pregnancy to stop or it happens naturally, but a pregnancy stops before um, usually 20 weeks or some people say before um, a live birth. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and in uh, lay terms, we think of abortion as a pregnancy that's stopping because somebody's taking an action whether they're taking a pill to induce cramping or whether they have a procedure called a um, dilation and curatage or um, um, DNC to actively stop a pregnancy developing. But if a pregnancy develops or stops developing on its own naturally, we refer to it as a miscarriage, but even on your, gosh, on bills from medical insurance, it'll say the word abortion because that's how the terms are um, you know, listed when you're a doctor and you're having to check off these codes and somebody talk about a trigger, you know, they get the medical bill and it says, you know, missed abortion. And they're like, I didn't have an abortion. And uh, it's just, I feel so. Oh, how many times you had to clarify that with patients? I'm sure. Well, it's good that you went over that in the book and discussed the difference and explained that and acknowledged that that might be triggering for some patients. Yeah. So we definitely won't be able to go into all of the causes of miscarriage, but can you talk about some of the ones that we know of from research? Sure. The most common cause of a first trimester miscarriage is a chromosomal imbalance in the pregnancy itself, just the way that particular egg and sperm came together and the the chromosomes, there's an extra chromosome or missing one. Um, So if you're able to test pregnancy tissue for this, um, depending on a lot of factors, anywhere from 60 to 80% of the time, you will find that that is exactly why the pregnancy stopped developing on its own. It's a genetic issue that has nothing to do with the people that are getting pregnant or stressed or wine or intercourse or all those things that people worry about. Um, it's really something that happened at fertilization. And, um, you know, we just, we've learned so much in studying genetics and especially in the field of IVF and the ability to screen embryos for chromosomal um, information before you transfer uh, embryo and human reproduction this sounds really weird, but it's so inefficient. Like there's so <laughs> many of the embryos that we make are not going to be babies. Um, and it's, that doesn't take away the, the physical pain or emotional pain of going through a miscarriage or a loss when you are so ready to add to your family. Um, but that really is the reality of, um, of getting pregnant. Yeah, it is unfortunately, but I mean, it's, it's good to know that the odds are still really in your favor for the next time around after a miscarriage. That doesn't necessarily help to hear like, oh, just keep trying. It'll be fine. Um, but it is good to know that the, the statistics are in your favor for a successful pregnancy the next time around after a miscarriage. Absolutely. Every pregnancy is a new opportunity and a great study that will never be able to be repeated again in the same way from um, Brigham and um, and it was published in the 1990s, just looking at 
age and how many times someone had gotten pregnant and no intervention whatsoever, no aspirin, no progesterone, no IVF, just what happens with the next pregnancy if they just are able to try again. And even at that point, if someone was 40 years old and they'd had five miscarriages, the sixth time that they conceived, 50% of the time they had a baby. Those are pretty good statistics. I mean, especially given the history there. Absolutely. So it's so good. Yeah. Yeah. It's so good that we are getting information out there that, you know, one in four pregnancies will end in miscarriage and age is a huge predictor of miscarriage and difficulty starting your family. Um, But there's also, there's a tipping point where we're, you know, almost talking about it without positive facts. So women are coming to me in such fear, you know, like, oh my God, age 35 is this like cliff. And if I don't have my family by age 35, I never will. And I'm like, yeah, okay. All right. Yes. The, you know, fewer of the eggs are perfect after age 35, the miscarriage rate does go up, but most people have their families just fine after 35, you know? So it's kind of, there's gotta be some balanced information out there. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about some common misconceptions when it comes to fertility. You just mentioned one of them and um, also what you kind of hear in the fertility clinics, you know, why, why people end up there and what are some misconceptions? Absolutely. Those are fun. I do. I try to do a um, fertility myth every Friday on my Instagram account and um, it's just been really fun um, and informative because I get lots of people um, messaging me ideas. So some of the most popular ones are um, if if I've had a baby before, and this is especially for men, if I've fathered a pregnancy before, then I'm there's nothing wrong with me. I don't even need to do a semen analysis. Like I'm all good, right? Um, and another one is. Um, my family's fertility history is going to be my story. So if my mom, you know, had babies in her forties, you know, then I will be able to do that too. Um, or my sister, you know, gets pregnant at the drop of a hat. I haven't tried yet, but I'm not worried about me because every, everybody in my family is fertile. Um, some other ones are, um, you know, that, that miscarriage is my fault, right? That it's, it's me. Um, I'm, I'm broken that it's something that I'm doing wrong or it's my immune system that's rejecting, a, um, a baby when in reality, it's almost always an embryo issue. So those are top three and there's just millions. Yeah, that's definitely true. Um, uh, I know you mentioned on another podcast I was listening to about women thinking, uh, which is, this is wonderful, but the idea of like, oh, we can start freezing our eggs. And I know that we can. And like I said, how awesome that science is advanced enough to be able to freeze our eggs. But you did mention that like that there's definitely some side effects to freezing eggs or, or maybe science just isn't quite there yet as much as we think it is. Yeah, that's, um, yeah, if you're just paying attention to social media or reading People magazine, it seems like it's easy and 100% successful and a guarantee. Um, And I am a huge proponent of egg freezing, and I do think it is an incredible technology. But I think people should be very, very well counseled before they do it. 
um, because it is not a guarantee and it's not a hundred percent and people, um, you know, make it an empowering choice, but, um, you know, it's just a, it's a backup. I don't, I worry about people making huge life decisions, um, based on having some eggs in the freezer. Cause when they, you know, there's a whole generation of women that right now are the pioneers and it's, we've got some data, but most people who have frozen their eggs haven't used them yet. And so it's really going to be five or 10 years from now when we really realize, you know, how it works. And, um, Again, huge proponent, but it was, um, you know, the first baby that was born from a frozen egg was 1986. So you're like, oh my gosh, this is old technology. This is great. But you know what? That was a miracle. And it was really, really, really hard to replicate that. And it wasn't lifted as an experimental procedure label by ASRM until 2012. Um, oh, wow. That, now that's seven but that's yeah. you know, in my lifetime. Um and I think it's really important. Um, so my clinic is really unique in that we've been freezing and using eggs since 2009, but the majority of them are with our donor egg bank. And so these are like 25 year old eggs. And we even see that um, different people, even if they're the same age, their eggs freeze and thaw and work differently. So even when you give somebody statistics based on, oh, you're freezing your eggs when you're 32, this might be based on a couple of hundred people that have come back to use them, um, but we still have a lot to learn. So again, huge, positive, wonderful thing. Um, but if you really want me to get up on my soapbox, I think we've got to find a way to help women have babies when their bodies are ready to do it, not just kick the can down the road. It's so hard um, for women because you know, your most fertile years are your most like career building years. And, you know, like the physicians have a huge rate of infertility because they're waiting, you know, because they're doing residency and fellowship. And I'm a great example of that, you know, waiting and waiting, waiting to, to have a kid. So anyway, you didn't ask all of that, but I could talk for a while on that too. Oh, that's great. Um, I'd also like to ask about IVF because I think a lot of women and couples sort of view IVF as like the ultimate, you know, fertility treatment, um, but it's not necessarily right for everybody. So can you kind of talk about that a little bit? Oh, absolutely. I know I'm a IVF doctor that often talks to people about um, not doing IVF, you know, because it's not a perfect treatment for everyone. Um People really do hold it up on a pedestal. Um, if it's this most advanced technology and it's certainly darn expensive, it's just got to work. And again, you're kind of, I think because people are talking about it so much, they sort of feel like everybody else is doing IVF and it's got to be working for them. Um, so people almost um, are a little bit um, um, flippant about it you know, more than when I started practicing, when I started practicing, it was like the last extreme, you know, um, you tried everything else that you could before you went to IVF. It was this, you know, final straw. And now people are a little bit more casual about it and actually jumping to it and assuming that, that we're going to do it a, a little bit quicker. Um, but IVF is only as good as the eggs and sperm that we have to work with. Um, it, it was, you know, invented for people with blocked fallopian tubes. Um, you know, 41 years ago, it's a way to bypass fallopian tubes. Um, it's great for male factor if someone has a low sperm count, but they still have sperm. We can really help the sperm fertilize eggs in the lab. 
But um, the final frontier is really eggs. You know, so women with really poor egg quality or low ovarian reserve, um, sometimes they are, you know, very quick to want to do IVF and get very frustrated when I have to say, listen, the chances of this working are really, really low for you. It might take multiple cycles and, you know, we can do everything that we can, but I got to be transparent and honest with you before we get started. Yeah, I think that's really important to to think about and to realize that there are cases where, you know, IVF is not a fix-all for every fertility problem. So I do think it is definitely put on a pedestal in the fertility community. And I think people who haven't gone through infertility or, you know, experienced any trouble conceiving at all, they kind of just think, well, well, why haven't you done IVF yet? You know, they <laughs> talk to somebody who's going through a fertility struggle and they're like, okay, so when are you starting IVF or why haven't you done it yet? you know, this will get you a baby faster. Like, why wouldn't you do that? And and there are some very real reasons that a couple might not want to do that either because, you know, they are struggling with egg quality or, or ovarian reserve, or just that they don't necessarily want to take on the financial burden or maybe even just the side effects. I mean, it's, it's a tough procedure to go through. Mm-hmm. It's not just like a piece of cake. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I don't think people really understand it until until they're kind of knee deep in it. <laughs> like once they, they get all the stimulation and you know, the other drugs and, um, the multiple ultrasounds and all that. And it's, it's a big undertaking. And then they're like, okay, well, I guess we're in it. Let's go. <laughs> I think it's something that you can't really prepare for either because it's kind of unlike any medical treatment that you would have ever gone through before. So yeah. it's hard, hard to know what it's going to be like until you actually go through and do it. Right. And I, I do, I'm trying to find ways to, to talk to people and my patients about it. There's so much like you're preparing for the meds and the uh, appointments and you're trying to continue your life, right? Like whether it's work or, you know, having children or going to school. And then on top of that, you're adding all of this other, you know, appointments and shots and calling insurance companies and um, just the mental part is huge. The what if, and you know, it takes up a lot of space and Mm -hmm. emotional energy. Yeah. Yeah, definitely true. So we're going to move the conversation back to uh, pregnancy loss because that's kind of what we wanted to focus on since you wrote this amazing book. And um, the one thing I wanted to ask you about miscarriages. So if a woman has a miscarriage, which we know it's very common, right? One out of four, have it, especially when they know that they've had a positive, positive pregnancy test. And so, um, what is your suggestion? So if they come to you as a doctor and either, either they've had one or two or three, like at what point do you start investigating other causes and like, what would be your first line tests that you would start? Sure. Start with? Um, so one clarification is, um, and I see this all the time on social media and in articles, people say one in four, and they assume that that means one in four women have had a miscarriage, but it's actually one in four pregnancies. So I would argue it's more than one in four women. And that's actually not really including biochemical miscarriages. And so if you include that, that's that, higher. it's basically everyone, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, I just think that's really important. And, and, you know, a lot of the Fertility hashtags are one in eight because it really is one in eight couples in the United States um, meet the definition of infertility. Um, but I just wanted to say, I think um, the one in four is really one in four pregnancies because it's about 
a 25% miscarriage rate if you're in your um, 20s and 30s. And so I've really researched that because I'm like, oh, is it one in four? And when I'm doing posts, I'm like, hey, you know, I want to make sure that I'm giving out facts. So I think it might even be more than that. Yeah. Um, and ASRM uh, changed their definition and update to, uh, in 2013. Uh, that's the American Society of Reproductive Medicine. So that's our professional society to say that um, it is okay and absolutely should be okay to start investigating if someone has had two um, clinical miscarriages. So they do clarify two, but there are still lots of providers out there that don't start testing unless somebody's had three clinical miscarriages or later miscarriages. Um, and that is because that's how I was taught in medical school and how most of us were. It would only be anybody um, getting training after 2013 that would be really updated on that. Um, they don't address biochemical miscarriages. So the way they define it is recurrent miscarriages are um, two or more clinical. Recurrent miscarriage is a disease separate from infertility that is defined as two or more clinical miscarriages. And a clinical miscarriage or pregnancy is defined as a pregnancy that you can see something on ultrasound or have a tissue diagnosis. So ASRM completely leaves out um, biochemical miscarriages and the European Society of Reproductive Medicine came out with updated guidelines about a year or two ago that did say, hey, just so you know, there is some evidence that women with multiple biochemical miscarriages often also have issues that you can discover if you do an evaluation. So that is not going on in the United States, but um, you know, I do often do um, evaluations for women who've had multiple biochemical miscarriages and they, you can find issues. So I just, I know that's a long answer, but no, it's great, great clarification. Yeah. Well, it's, it's hard because, you know, patients will get a different answer from every medical provider that they go to. And that's because of where they trained or what they're reading. And, um, that can just be really frustrating as a, as a patient. Um, but the testing, you know, the, you're basically testing the people that are getting pregnant to see if there's anything that you can do to intervene to decrease the risk of miscarriage. Um, and just a reminder, most miscarriages is caused by the embryo. So that's why at least 50% of the time, and I would argue more, you don't find anything wrong, air quotes, when you do a recurrent miscarriage evaluation. But it's at its core, basically, it's a... Um, um, anatomy checkup. So you want to make sure that the inside of the uterine cavity doesn't have any fibroids or scarring or something that would impact implantation, like a septum, which is a, something that somebody can be born with. Um, you look at hormonal issues like thyroid disease, prolactin, um, you screen for diabetes. Um, you do, uh, we uh, we do a one genetic test in both partners, um, something called a karyotype, which is a blood test that's looking for something um, very rare, but it's called a balanced translocation. Um, and if that's found, um, that can put a couple at higher risk of miscarriages than you would expect for their age. Um, and so uh, anatomy, um, the one immune issue is something called antiphospholipid syndrome. So you're looking for a presence of antibodies in the system that really shouldn't be there when someone conceives because they can affect the ability of the placenta to implant the way that it should. Um, so uh, immune um, anatomy, hormones, um, genetics, and really that's it. That's the, the guidelines. 
I do also often do a semen analysis because these are couples that, um, especially if it's taking them a long time to conceive, or they're also thinking about doing fertility treatment. I want to get that as a baseline. And then something that I do, which is not a part of um, guidelines yet, but I do ovarian reserve testing on everybody that is um, coming to see me, partially because, um, again, they're thinking about doing fertility treatment. And if they have very poor ovarian reserve they, and they want to talk to me about IVF, I want to have a, a good conversation with them about the chances of success. Um, but through doing this, you know, over the past you know, several years, I really do and have found a high proportion of diminished ovarian reserve in my patients that have recurrent miscarriage. And so I think it's a reflection on even at a young age, um, a higher percentage of eggs that aren't able to do all the chromosomal changes that they need to. So- Yeah. Well, so let's kind of talk about that a little bit because there are a lot of other recommendations in your book that you make aside from just talking about the treatments for each of these um, testing options that you just mentioned. You talk about ways that couples can make themselves healthier Mm -hmm. and that can kind of ultimately influence egg quality to some degree. So talk about some of the recommendations that you make aside from just medical treatments in your book. Absolutely. Um, And that's one of my favorite things to talk about because when you're trying to have your family, um, you feel so out of control, right? And so, and a lot of times we don't find an answer, like we don't find a thyroid issue that I can prescribe a medication for. And so becoming healthier or looking at things that you can control can be very empowering for patients. So I think about, of course, you know, smoking, heavy alcohol use, marijuana, um, managing stress. Like we can't, we can't just eliminate stress. It's just like a misnomer. You can't be like, Oh, I'm just not going to have any any stress today. But if we can work on managing stress, I think it's helpful for us as human beings. Um, I don't necessarily think that stress causes miscarriage, but if you are having multiple miscarriages, you are going to be stressed. And so why not work on that? Mm -hmm. Um, And then I do a lot of talk and um, advocacy around environmental toxins and its impact on egg quality, sperm quality, and miscarriage risk. Um, And I really um, opened my eyes to this as I was researching for the books. And when I first learned about all of this, it was very unsettling. And so you have to take it with a grain of salt and just sort of slowly take it in over time. But it's pretty disturbing just how overwhelming the evidence is that, um, you know, plastics, you know, like BPA and phthalates, which are plasticizers as well, but also in a lot of our beauty products and um, home products absolutely impact egg quality, sperm quality and um, miscarriage rate. So um, I talk about just kind of taking it one product at a time using apps like um, ewg.org or the Think Dirty app where you can, you know, just um, you're running out of shampoo. Okay, great. Why don't you turn over the barcode and get your phone and check and see just how you know toxic that shampoo is. Yeah, it's pretty toxic. All right, let's go find a new one, you know. It's, um, you can't just like go through your entire home, right? But um, um, trying to get plastic and heating up food kind of out of your kitchen. So if you have a plastic Tupperware in your um, 
heating it up in the microwave, you know, you're going to be getting toxins into that food. Um, so I talk a lot about that. Yeah, I think the toxins piece is really important. And it is super overwhelming when people first start investigating that. They're like, how is it possible that all of this stuff is in things that we use every day? You know, who's managing that? Who's protecting us? And and the answer, unfortunately, is nobody yet. Um, so I think the um, the responsibility, unfortunately, is really on women and couples to do the research. And that's why it's so great that people like you and people like us are out there like spreading the word about how to get some of the stuff out of your daily routine. And thankfully, there are so many companies now that are producing cleaner personal care products, cleaner beauty products, better household cleaning products. It is possible for, you know, an affordable price to replace some of these products with things that work just as well and that aren't going to harm you the same way. It's just awareness. And I, Mm -hmm. um, I think something that's really important is, um, if we educate people from a real fear, people are going to kind of shut down. Like if you think about Mm -hmm. move towards climate change, like a lot of people are just like, I don't want to hear about it anymore. Um, but something that's really positive, it's, it's really only, um, people with the highest levels of these in their system. Um, like if you do a, a blood test when someone has a positive pregnancy test, it's only this small portion of people that really have significantly high levels of BPA or phthalates in their system that have a significantly higher miscarriage rate. Um, and there's lots of studies that show if you do make changes, your body recovers really mm-hmm. quickly. Like it's the scary thing, you know, that, that, of Americans have BPA in their system, you know, according to the CDC random check. Um, That's scary. Like we are being exposed to them all the time, but little changes can drastically decrease the amount that, that is in your system. So that's very positive. Yeah, definitely. I, I find this very empowering. I mean, it's initially overwhelming, but it's empowering, especially in a case of recurrent pregnancy loss where you are looking to regain some semblance of control over the situation. And this is something that you do have control over. There are great options um, and it, and it can be done. And there are people out there that are helping to, you know, spread the word and make it easier for couples to do that. That's great. Exactly. I hope it's a positive message. Yeah. It's, um, you know, a couple of facts, Um, you know, Europe is so different from the United States so United States, um, the last time legislature was passed to limit a chemical in a beauty product was um, in the 1930s. Think about how many different products have come on the market since then. Yeah. A total of um, 11 chemicals have been banned um, for use in the United States. Um, and in Europe, it's, it's over 1,500. Yeah, they are definitely more on top of the research about how these things yeah. affect us. And they are um, making changes. So I mentioned earlier that I wanted to ask you about this and we're getting towards the end. So I definitely want to cover it, but um, I wanted to talk about what women and couples should be looking for in their care team, you know, especially if they're struggling with their fertility or they're looking for somebody to help them through recurrent pregnancy loss. Um, What should they be looking for when it's time to choose a provider? Absolutely. Um, I think there's got to be a connection or a feeling with the practice. Um, and it can start with that very first visit where you just ask the question, how am I going to get my questions answered? You know, and knowing that you're going to be able to communicate, um, get your questions answered, um, feel respected. Um, and it also, you know, part of it, 
there's a couple of things. Like if you're planning to do IVF, it is very important that you find a center that has good success rates and has a lab that is, um, you know, doing really, really well. I, I don't think in the lay public, people really realize how important the IVF lab is for success. Um, and so that that is a big part of it. But then if you're looking for care for recurrent pregnancy loss, it doesn't necessarily have to involve IVF and it's an ongoing process. So you want to look for somebody that is going to be compassionate, you know, and ask the question, when I have a positive pregnancy test, like, what are we going to do? Are you going to be like a previous provider that won't see me until I'm 10 or 12 weeks along? Because you know what? I've lost every pregnancy between six and eight weeks. Like, will you see me early? Like, if that's going to make me feel better, will you see me early? And kind of have somebody that's going to be on your team answering questions, seeing you if you need it, um, not you know, you know, validating your concerns, right? Like going to a place where um, the the team, because a lot of times you're not necessarily talking to the doctor every time that you call in, right? But finding a place where you feel that compassion and, and care is really important. Yeah, I think that's really great advice. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, there are a lot of women and couples that have not had that experience with their care providers and they get, you know, a little discouraged. And, you know, it's just so great to know that there are a lot of providers, like really amazing doctors that are doing exactly what you just said, you know, providing compassionate care, answering questions, making themselves available. So they're out there. You just got to find them. Yeah, that's great. Well, and a lot of people really, I like the team approach. So looking for naturopathic doctors or nutritionists or even Eastern medicine doctors and, you know, the Western doctors like me, like I can do the tests and I can order, um, you know, an evaluation and I can do IVF, but um, a lot of you know, other things can kind of come together to really help the person in an integrative approach. So, because sometimes access to care is really frustrating for people. So they, you know, they're like, oh my gosh, you know, I get um, DMs, you know, all the time on Instagram, you know, can I, can I see you for a second opinion? Can I, you know, I live across the country and I really have to decline because it's, um, it's such an ongoing care. I can't fix everything with a phone call. And so, you know, maybe finding somebody that can do the testing and if that person doesn't, you don't connect with them, um, but, you know, you're going to try naturally find that person that's going to be on your team. It breaks my heart how many women out there might have stopped trying because they gave up hope or they didn't find anybody that could support them when they didn't give up wanting to be a mom. Yeah, definitely. So... Well, I think the last question we have that we like to ask all of our podcast guests is what is your pearl of wisdom that you want women to walk away from this episode with? Oh, I love it. Um, be an advocate for your own care. You know, um, there's a balance between reading too much on Dr. Google, um, you know, but um, finding podcasts like this with compassionate people that are trying to get a positive and accurate message out there is really important. Um, you know, finding books, you know, like mine, um, asking questions and, you know, going to appointments, um, researching a little bit is really, really helpful. And, you know, finding a doctor that's going to take the time to answer those questions and be a partner in your care is really important. Fabulous message. Yeah, that's great yeah. advice. 
Well, thank you so much, Dr. Shaheen, for being here on the Mastering Your Fertility podcast. And can you just tell the listeners where they can find you? I know you're really active on social media. You've mentioned it a couple of times. And so um, just let us know where they can follow you. No, thanks. Well, it's really an honor to be on here. Thank you. And um, my handle is the same across Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. It's all Dr. Laura Shaheen. Um, and I do have a website where I kind of keep track of um, blog posts if it's something that I really want to talk about and feel passionately about, and um, you can reach me there. All right. We will definitely make sure to link to those in the show notes, and thanks so much again for being with us. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. All right. That's going to wrap it up for today. We hope that you enjoyed that episode with Dr. Shaheen. She's so amazing and full of knowledge. I am just so grateful for everything that she's doing for women's health and for the fertility community, especially with women and couples that are struggling with recurrent pregnancy loss. So please, if you uh, get a chance, go find her on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter and give her a shout out and say, thank you so much for the episode. We'd appreciate that. The links to uh, her handles are in the podcast description notes. Also, please follow us on Instagram. We are at tinyfeet.co and we post uh, things every day from research articles or inspiring quotes or um, awesome recipes. Uh, So please come over and say hi. We would love to hear from you. And also we are doing a book giveaway for Dr. Shaheen's uh, book, Not Broken. So if you are interested in this book or you feel, uh, or you know a friend or a family member that would appreciate having this book, please head over to Instagram and you're just going to tag a friend and also follow us and Dr. Shaheen. All the, um, the book giveaway Uh, instructions will actually be over on Instagram on the podcast episode artwork post that will come out the morning of this episode. So that's going to be uh, June, when is that going to be? June 12th, (laughs) June 12th of 2019. So Uh, look out for that. And uh, also, um, please remember that we have that free quiz on that is in the description note. So it's are you healthy enough to get pregnant? So this is a great way to get started on wondering if you have any particular symptoms that might be affecting your fertility or ability to carry to term. And so it's a great place to get started. And then we give you some really actionable steps to be able to start addressing those symptoms. And then again, you can go listen to episode 16, where we talk all about the, uh, the uh, subjects in this quiz. And that episode is called, Are You Healthy Enough to Get Pregnant? Thanks so much for listening today. And we hope to hear or see you back next week. Thanks.